as we come to Leviticus chapter 26 and our final topical study in the book of Leviticus, this is that handbook that God gave the nation of Israel to better understand his law and how it applies to their personal lives, their civil interactions with their neighbors, and the religious practices of how God was revealing himself at that time to them as a nation in a covenant and how he was to be worshipped by them. And as we get to the back end of the book, we come to this chapter 26 where there are promises of blessing and retribution. Now, the Bible is filled with promises of blessings and retribution. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a promise from God to our the head of our race, Adam and Eve, the heads, that there are blessings for obedience at the tree of life, but there's retribution for partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the consequence of death. And even so, all throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, even to the final chapters of Revelation, we're just told who is in the new heaven and the earth based upon obedience and, and fruit and who is not based upon the consequences of rebellion to God. So there's a consistency that we see with God's character. Of course, we see it with just in every generation, whether it was progressive revelation with the different covenants from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses, the nation of Israel, and to us now with the everlasting covenant in Jesus Christ, there are promises of blessing for the right decisions in obeying the Lord, and there are promises of retribution for rebellion and disobedience to the Lord. Now, in the context of Israel, of course, they were a people group, an ethnic people group, in a covenant with God as a nation that were being given a land promised them by God as a nation. So it's very unique in that sense that no one's had that, and probably the closest thing to that would really be the United States of America. God didn't make a biblical covenant with us, but our founding fathers made pretty similar type of agreement with the Lord at the Continental Congress that these guys made at Sinai, but don't confuse the two because they are two completely different things. But the principles of like how a nation can be blessed because God does give principles for a nation, the principles of how a marriage and a family can be blessed and the principles of how an individual can be blessed all through faith in Jesus Christ and how those things carry through for a person, their loving relationships, their home, a community and a nation. So keep that context for Israel. So we pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 26 of Leviticus in this chapter where it's just laid out. And we're going to focus on the good promises tonight. We we looked at the difficult promises Tuesday night and even the safety net of confession and humility to be restored. But tonight we're going to focus on these first uh, verses 3 through 13. God says this. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall be till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall be till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of wild, evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not 
be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. In fact, that is, of course, exactly what God did do for the children of Israel. He had had his hand on them from the time he called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans. The subsequent generations from Abraham to Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons. The nation of Israel, they go into Egypt during the famine. 400 years later, they've come out and they're here at Mount Sinai. And so contextually, this God initiated the covenant. And God initiated the guidelines of the covenant. And he invited them to be a part of the covenant. We saw that in chapter 19 of Exodus. And they agreed to the covenant. Like they wanted to be a part of the covenant and they agreed to it. And he had promised to do all these things. And even now, and we go forward in numbers, we're going to see he's promising to give them the land, all the blessings and everything. And what they need to do is what all subsequent previous generations did who were justified before the Lord. They need to believe him. They needed to believe in who he is, in his word, his character, his promises, his blessings, and his character of justice of, of love and righteousness and his character of justice and dealing with evil and sin because God is love and love gives a choice to us and love will not allow injustice so we get to experience love this side of eternity and we get to experience some justice this side of eternity but in the end game in eternity in the everlasting kingdom there's perfect love and there's perfect justice and all things are made straight and right before him to whom we must give an account. But in the timeline of life, in time, space, and matter, and in the various covenants of dispensations where God has worked with different people, there's choices, but they're always going to be saved by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. Noah was justified by faith. Abel was justified by faith. Hebrews tells us that in the New Testament. And they were going to be justified by faith. So even though this covenant says, if you do these things, I will do this for you, it's still all by faith. So don't confuse this covenant with that they're doing good works to go to heaven. They still are justified by faith in who God is, what he's promised, and letting him work in and through their lives on an individual basis as the nation of Israel, as Israelites, in a national covenant, but with personal choices and decisions of faith. That's why in the book of Hebrews, you have the people of faith from the nation of Israel also in chapter 11 after they came into the land. Even Rahab the harlot, who was an Israelite, is in there as well. So the principle of faith is always there. This is important because we don't want to lose the faith element when we think about obedience. And we're saved by faith. We're justified by faith when we give our life to Christ. And we're given that positional righteousness. And then by faith, we live the life that God has for us to live that produces the character of Christ in obedience to his personal calling on our lives that only we can do, which we talked about with Aaron, you know, change the showbread, like the altar, you know, the lampstand, that was his task. So it's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure, and we are his workmanship, so we're saved by grace, and we're his workmanship, created before things that we should walk in them and fulfill them. So we're each a unique work of art for God, now in the church age, even as each of these individual Israelites, men and women, were in this covenant. So we want to keep that Frame. We want to keep that framework of faith, grace, obedience, God's character, and all that. But contextually with Israel, there really is a very absolute, you make good decisions, good things are going to happen for you nationally. Now, we get that personally, right? If you sow to the Spirit, you reap life. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. That's an individual thing that the New Testament tells us in the book of Galatians to the Apostle Paul. But they were national. And again, I mentioned this earlier. 
Decisions affect the community. If the community leaders want a godly influence in their community, it benefits the community. The, pe- the city rejoices when the righteous reign, we're told in Proverbs. But if the people don't want that, you can have an evil city, and it allows a lot of evil. And if you remove law and order and you encourage disorder, then you get the consequences of more crime, more murder, more fear, and more heartache and sorrow, which we're seeing in our country right now with politicians and leaders who don't want to be governed by God. So really what this comes together here is, in fact, to be governed by God. A nation, families, individuals, to be governed by God. And the beauty of God's government is if we let God govern us, we need very little government from man. That's the key. See, if God's word and his spirit govern us, we're going to be the ideal citizens for any society. We're going to bring Jesus to that society, and he's the perfect citizen. So the more we're governed and subject to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the better it is for us, the people we love and care about, our character, our eternal purposes, and the better it is for a community and a nation. And the more people that are governed by God personally, the better it is for a community, a home, and a nation. So the real thought here is being governed by God and subject to his laws, because he said in verse 3, if you walk in my statutes, if you keep my commandments and you perform them, And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And if my people are called by my name, will repent from their evil ways, I will heal their land. So an individual, a family, a community, a nation that rejects God's government, they're they're not going to be protected and blessed by him. But an individual, a family, a community, and a nation that chooses to be under his government, that guides their government, they are going to be blessed by them. And historically, when you look at European kings during the medieval times and all that, the kings that were good kings were generally kings and queens who loved the Lord, feared the Lord, often worked with their state churches, whether they're Prussian or Russian or Swedish or English or French, whatever. It's generally speaking, when you study European history, the good kings were God-fearing kings, and they brought blessings to the people. So there's nothing new under the sun. So here we are weighed in the balances for such a time as this, as a nation. And our thoughts are really on the nation, but the beauty of today's events with Franklin Graham is that when it was all said and done, it brought it back to the individual. It brought it back to the individual. And Graham Lotz's prayer brought it back to the individual. And so tonight, what I want to talk about in this context, from Israel as a nation, even our history as a nation, and where we're at right now, because people are crying out for repentance for how we've been as a nation and the evil laws we've allowed in our communities, in our states, and in our country. And we're praying and we're crying out for mercy that we truly repent and godly people would come to power and reverse these things and put us in the place where the blessings are, the promises of blessings, not the promises of retribution. Because we're looking hard at retribution right now and we're trying to shift to promises of blessings. But regardless of what goes on around us, as I've said for years, we can choose blessings and we can walk in those blessings if the apocalypse is unfolding around us. Because what God promised to them nationally, he promises us to individually. And if a nation chooses to make good choices, good for them. But if you make good choices, good for you. And that's really the bigger picture here for us individually. And as a church. So if we personally choose to walk in God's word, his statutes, his standards. If we personally choose to keep his commandments as revealed in his word, the principles of the Old Testament, the applications of the New Testament. I mean, do not murder, do not lie, do not steal. They're they're all in play in the New Testament, right? 
do not covet it's all in play. So we choose to keep those commandments in our, our worldview, our decision-making processes of right and wrong, because we all have a moral compass. And if we let God's word be the moral compass, let God be true and every man a liar, then we're going to walk in that direction of the compass, the statutes of his word. Psalm 119 really lays this out in the Old Testament. We're going to keep, we're going to make decisions consistent with his word to keep his commandments, and we're going to perform them. We're going to reflect them. So in family relations, in neighborhood relations, in community relations, in civic national relationships, in interactions, how we think in our country like ours where we can vote, how we vote, what we speak in the workplace, what we speak in the college campus, what we speak in our community involvement, our standards that guide us. If we walk in his statutes, keep his commandments, perform them, we, you personally, us as a church, we're going to put ourselves in a place where we're under his blessings. And the principles promised in this text apply to our life. And there's three things he promises them. He promises them provision. He promises them protection. And he promises them most of all, perhaps the greatest of all, his presence. And this is what we want to look at on a personal level. His provision. In verses 4 through 6, it's an agriculture society. We've been talking about the agri-society quite a bit going through Leviticus because it really, they were totally dependent upon the Lord that way. <laughs> there's, there's no supermarkets or there's just, you can't go online and order it from Amazon. You know, you had, you had to raise it, you had to grow it, you had to or provide a service by which you could negotiate it for it from other people, your neighbors. So he said in verse four, this is a promise to them and, and this is a reaffirm the New Testament. We'll talk about that. If you obey me, so if we walk in the statutes, keep his commandments, perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. So the rain would be in its season. Think about this for a minute. Everything's right on time, right? Don't you like a paycheck on time? You ever do a job and not get paid on time? Just for the fun of it. Raise your hand if you've ever done a job and you get paid on time. Raise it nice and high so we all realize the company we're in, the majority of you. You did a job and you didn't get paid on time, right? Especially you people that do contractor work. You know, it's like, oh, you did a job and you get paid on time. Wow. There's something nice when you're on a payroll and the check automatically goes into your account on the 1st and the 15th. You got to admit that's a nice thing, right? Where when you do independent contractor work, 1099 work, stuff like that, boy, uh, that can be a tough one. Yeah? Or like my mom did real estate for 40 years and it's an escrow and it falls out of escrow two days before it's supposed to close. And it's like, you just never count on it, real estate, right? You just can, you can just, you're like this till like it all goes through. God, as our provider, I will give you rain in its season. That means what you need comes in the regular cycle of when it's supposed to come when you need it. In your regular season, the regular pay cycle, the regular billing cycle. I will give you the rain because you're growing stuff and you need the rain. I will give you the rain in its season. Your rain in its season. All blessings. You're going to look up. Here comes the cloud. Here comes the rain. Tomatoes are growing. Corn's growing. Everything's growing. Just, I'm going to take care of you. The mango grove, all of it. It's all good. And he says, I'm going to give you the rain in season. Then the land shall yield its produce. So I'm going to give you the rain. It's going to do the, the weather system is going to do what I've designed it to do. And then the ground's going to do what I've designed it to do. And so all the nutrients of the soil, they're going to produce this incredible produce for you. And we do know, we've mentioned this previously in Leviticus, that Israel is one of the world's largest exporters to this day of produce and flowers and things like that to the world. Last time I checked, it was number three in the world, the size of Southern California. 
That is just crazy. Plus, you consider the Dead Sea and the Judean wilderness is dead, so you can't really go anything there. So they're working with a stacked hand against them, and they're exporting that amount of produce to the world from Israel. It's a good land. In fact, what did Jesus, what, what did the Father say about the land in the Old Testament? It's the land flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. He was going to give them vineyards they didn't build and plant. He's going to give them olive groves and all these things they didn't do. He's giving to them. He was preparing it for them, and it's the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's, and everything there in it, he can give it to who he wants. And he was preparing it for them. He was giving them a great land, and he said, when you get there, I'll give you the rain on, on, this, on the pay cycle, and then I'm gonna, the land is going to do what I've designed it to do, and it's going to yield its crops. You're going to have everything you need. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. There it is. We've talked about fruit trees in the past. I talked about growing up in Vista. Vista is a, a great place to grow fruit. There used to be all these old avocado groves in the 30s and the 40s and whatnot. And my dad lived in the Valley of Vista. And there was a time in the late 70s, early 80s, where my dad had just the most incredible fruit trees. I mean, the apricot, the white peach, the, the plum tree was insane. And he, he, he loved it. He, was, you know, he loved a garden. He had a huge garden at like about you know, a fourth of this sanctuary. And he just loved to get out there. And he'd have so much fruit. He'd have by the roadside there on Osborne Street. You know, just come on by and grab it. He was uh, the communal farmer, like uh, you know, the cool millennials now, before it was cool. Like He just did it because he comes from... You know, a farming family originally from Wisconsin. Those apricots, they would go in July. And it'd just be, it was crazy. And then the white peaches, about the same time, they were so good. God provided. And I watched him do it. I'm glad my dad had all those fruit trees and all the vegetable garden, all that, because I could see this type of things happen. When I used to stay in New Jersey with Denny Barger, my good friend, that we've supported ministry in the Middle East, he's in the States now because there's, yeah, everyone had to come home. And he's back in New Jersey, but he had 10 acres in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, right there by Manahawkin, central New Jersey. And they got this farmhouse. They had like eight kids. They, they grew everything. They had goats. They did 4-H stuff, but they grew everything. And my kids were talking about this recently, how when we stayed with Denny Barger and you ate the table, everything at that table came from what... You know, it's hard to feed a family of eight kids. I mean, I've never tried it. Force kept me busy for the last 30 years. But eight kids... It was a lot, and the ground yielded. In their society, they understood that they have to trust in the Lord from start to finish. The rain, the land, the fruit, the, the trees, everything. It, it's like they were, to, they were totally, we're seeing about trusting the Lord. They were totally dependent upon trusting the Lord, and that's the way it was meant to be. And God has designed our lives through faith in Jesus Christ, and even though we can... You know, we earn a paycheck, electronically gets deposited this way, and then we go here and we use a card, we never see the cash, whatever, and, but it goes there, and then we see it in our account, and we balance the checkbook, and we reconcile at the end of the month. It's the same principle. God's provided us a job, and as we're serving the Lord, we see his handiwork in that. From that job, we acknowledge him with our first fruits. Ideally, we trust in the Lord, we recognize his blessing over our lives. Then he's providing for us, and we, we have this, we go to work, we get the compensation, we go to Albertsons, Sprouts, and we get our groceries, and we buy our gasoline, you know, we do, we do our things. It's the same principle that God is faithful to provide for us. Jesus, when asked how to pray, they said, teach us to pray. And he said, pray in this manner, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Eternal perspective right away, his character. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, like us praying today for our country. 
Give us this day our daily bread. The New Testament church is designed to be dependent on daily bread. We're designed to be dependent on daily bread. And the guy who built the bigger barns, he said, man, now I can really kick it because I've got a ton of dough in the bank. I've got bigger barns and I can just, you know, kind of say to myself, self, kick back and go well with it with your life right now. You don't need to do anything. You built the bigger barn, it's all there. And then Jesus said, oh foolish man, tonight your soul will be required of you. And then who gets your wealth then? See, there's a deceitfulness with riches. The Bible actually uses that term, the deceitful, deceitfulness of riches. Wealth is deceiving. You can have a lot of money and it can go away really fast. And you say, Joey, where's the money go? Why don't you know? It goes to money heaven. Just ask all those people in 2008, 2009, 2000, where'd it go? Money heaven. It just, it just goes to money heaven. It happens all the time. There's a deceitfulness of riches, and there's a tendency within all of us to trust in the wealth. And the more wealth we have, okay, I've got X amount of properties, or I've got X amount of money in the bank, I've got these good stocks. Man, we've got to realize it can be gone like that. Look back to Europe in the 30s. Pretty much had anyone, anyone had wealth, lost their wealth in the 30s in, in Europe. Jewish, non-Jewish. I mean, Europe got destroyed. I mean, the Marshall Plan was to be rebuild Europe after the Germans, the Soviets, and the Americans had obliterated the entire continent to stop the madness of what was World War II and the Third Reich. The Marshall Plan, we're such a benevolent country, we had our best general for that moment, Marshall. He wanted to be a hero during World War II. He was a real hero after World War II with the Marshall Plan with Truman, and we rebuilt Europe. That's what kind of a country we come from, people. And got them back on track. But can you imagine in Europe? I've watched so many movies on Europe during the 30s, like foreign movies, all kinds of them. Polish, English, French, in French, Russian, lots of them in Russian. It's crazy what they went through. They're still looking for wealth that was redistributed during World War II by the Nazis. It's still unaccounted for. What are you saying, Joy? I'm saying that you and I could lose every penny we have by tomorrow. Hey, you know when the Bolsheviks came to power during World War I? That's when Russia pulled out of World War I. They were losing anyways. They were poorly prepared for it. But the Bolsheviks came to power, and within one year, all, that, all those people had wealth for centuries. They lost it. It was gone. That civil war in Russia between the White Army and the Red Army, I mean, man, by, by the late 20s and Stalin's taking everything from the Ukraine and the Ukrainian famine where he killed millions of people, starved them to death. If we were Ukrainian in the late 20s, if we were Germans, Poles, Slavics, Romanians, Bulgarians, well, the Romanians were, you know, they fought with the Germans. Um, just take any people group during World War II and you're a Christian. And what happens when all goes bad? A.E. Waldersmith, the famous scientist that loved Jesus so much, the British, he married a German woman who came through World War II. And she described that when the Soviet troops came through eastern Germany when they were going to Berlin, because, you know, not all Germans wanted to go to war. I'm, I'm sure most of you know that. There are a lot of Christians that were opposed to it, like Bonhoeffer and these others. But A.E. Watersmith's wife describes the Soviet troops coming, and they plundered and they raped everybody as they were moving toward Berlin. Everybody, every, every village, everybody. And she describes how her and her friends that were part of the church that they're in a, a building that when the Soviets came, they were spared and they were not touched. God is our provider and God is our protector. 
and we have no idea what the future holds, and we can have the best laid plans imaginable being upper middle class or middle class or lower middle class in California, and it could be gone like that. And we all know there are a lot of people that want to take it right now in power. And I'll say it boldly, they're traitors, and they're trying to destroy this country from within. And they might just take it. But don't let them take your faith in Jesus Christ to be your provider. Because I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread in the city gates. Evil is evil, and we are in an evil time. Make no mistake about it. But God is faithful in all times, in all seasons, and he provides for his people. And Jesus said, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And he means business because he wants to show us as our provider that he will provide for us our daily bread. He said to the apostle Paul, with food and clothing, we'll be content. And who knows, before we get to eternity, that might be a lesson we have to learn. With food and clothing, be content. We might have to learn that lesson. And by the way, if you have to learn that lesson, that's not a bad lesson to learn getting ready for eternity, is it? Let's just be real right here. If the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, with food and clothing, it certainly brought nothing into this world, and it certainly will take nothing out of it. So therefore, with food and clothing, we'll be content. That's what the Holy Spirit says to the church through Paul the Apostle to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Jesus said not to worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Is that a cute platitude from the Sermon on the Mount? Or is that something doctrinally sound to secure our faith no matter what we face from here to eternity? He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or wear, for this is what the world thinks about. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If we keep his commandments, if we walk in his ways and we perform them, he promises to provide us with the food and clothing we need for this life. Now, the standard of food, the standard of clothing... You know, the happiest people I have found so often are the people with the least. And if you study church history, you'll find that to be so in many cases. The simplicity. Our life, hasn't COVID made your life simpler? Isn't it a lot less complicated? You know, I, I gained so much time back by just giving up on professional sports altogether. <laughs> I gained so much time back. I, I, like, I redeemed like 15% of my time. It's amazing what God gave me back. And suddenly at 60, I'm like, I need that time because I'm running out of time. And I can use that time in a better capacity than sitting around watching overpaid millionaires tell me how I should live, how I should vote, and how I should think. That's my time. I chose to give it to them. I'm not giving it to them anymore. You want to give them your time? That's your business. And I'm fine with that, seriously. But that's not how I'm spending my time. My vision is sharper. My words are crisper. And my convictions are absolute. God promises to feed us and take care of us. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we make the right decisions. He's going to take care of us. And there might be things that we face that move us to fear what we trust in as a safety net. I'm all for prudence because of prudence foresee evil and they take refuge, but the foolish pass on and are punished. I'm all for prudence. I'm all about planning and prudence. But the plans of mice and men can get blown up in a day when evil men come to power. But nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's in Christ Jesus. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. And he promises to give it to us. Our provision. That protection is in verse 6. I will give you peace in the land. There's pe- I will give peace in the land. So peace in the land. He says, you're, you're not going to lie down and be afraid. 
I will rid the land of evil beasts. I can't imagine living in a society where there's evil beasts, like in Africa, where people still have to deal with lions and crazy evil beasts. Like, I mean, we get some mangy coyotes in our neighborhood, and they'll give you trouble. But, you know, like, I mean, evil beasts. I just, I don't know. If I see a video like a bear coming towards someone, like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to see a bear except in a zoo at San Diego on the other side. But people historically live in places where there are wild animals. And if you want to go live the good life in Montana, you pay attention what trails you go on. But God promises safety. He promises peace in the land. He promises protection. He promises protection to his people. He promises to give them peace in the land. He promises that the sword will not go through their land. He said, you will chase your enemies and five of you shall chase a hundred and then, and then a f- five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put to flight 10,000. Now, this is very contextual for Israel. And we did see this. Gideon's men, you know, I mean, it's crazy. Like 300 men put to, to chase 120,000 Midianites. We've seen this in the Bible. The defeat of the Edomites as well. There's different, there's different you know, David taking on Goliath. There's all kinds of stories that would affirm this. And Deborah and Barak and what they did to Sisera and all that in the book of Judges. Samson with the jawbone. Those are real stories, people. Those things really happened. And God did this. He, he showed himself strong this way to protect them in the land. They, they had a standing army because they had surrounded by enemies, much like it is today in Israel. And they did have regular combat. And who can fathom such things except those that you might be combat veterans in here? And I know we have at least one in this room that's a combat veteran. So, but who can fathom? But his protection, first and foremost, is a spiritual protection. And because, again, we're, what we're dealing with in our country right now is a spiritual battle. It's, it's spiritual. It is so evil where the father of lies twists good and makes it evil. And he takes evil and twists it and makes it good. Like, I can't believe some of the stuff I see and read right now in, concerning our country. I'm like, I, these people are out of their mind. They're insane. They are absolutely demonically insane. They are given over to total depravity to think that this is good and this is evil. It's, it's insane. It's a spiritual battle. And this is where we hold the high ground. Because the church always holds the high ground in a spiritual battle. Do you understand? For our weapons are not carnal, but they're spiritual. And they're mighty in God for tearing down strongholds. Thus, we are praying for our nation. We are praying for our state and these bad laws to be repealed. We are praying for godly men and women to lead this state forward from the abyss that we've been brought to by these godless, evil people. And that's what they are. And I'm willing to stand before Jesus Christ for every word on this message right now. They are godless, evil people. And they are deliberately doing things to try and destroy the church with Satan's help. And you can quote me. But our weapons are mighty in God for turning down strongholds. So it's not about making a comment on a blog or on a news story. It's about being on our knees and praying for mercy and grace and forgiveness and finding humility and brokenness that God would heal our land. That is our spiritual weapon. It's not conquering from above. It's being broken from below. And God says, if my people will humble themselves and repent of their sins, I will heal their land. 
And as much as anything was a cry for today from the prayer march it, from Franklin Graham in D.C. today, it was a call for humility and brokenness. And by the way, the back part of this chapter on Tuesday night, we studied it where God said this. If, they, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember their, the covenant and I will remember the land. And if they accept their guilt because they despise my judgment, because their soul abhorred my statutes, I will not cast them away. I am the Lord their God. And this is what has to happen in the church right now. Right now. Nine out of ten churches do not have pastors in the pulpit that believe the Bible. This has to change right now. We're all being shaken. And what's shaken, only what's solid remains. It's happening right now. We're all being tested. We're on the 40-day countdown. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. It's the day of the Lord in the valley of decision. And who will stand? You're here tonight because the Lord has brought you here. I know most of you by name. Not all of you, but most of you. And I trust that God's working in your life. We have to pray. We have to fight this battle with spiritual weapons of prayer. And we have, not, we have to be careful not to let any evil force move us, even the slightest, from the conviction of truth of God's word. Let God be true and every man a liar. Because God is light and him is no darkness at all. And he's not changed. Everything around us has changed. But God has never changed. He's never going to change. He is going to protect his people. We are in a spiritual battle. And we're not done till he's done. It's like the guy that prayed today that was imprisoned in Turkey for a couple years. I do not want to be imprisoned in Turkey. Of all the, you know, I'm just thinking like, I don't want to be imprisoned at all. But Turkey would be high on my list of like top five countries not to be imprisoned as a Christian in. Just saying. Right? But there he was testifying of his release. And what did he credit to his release? Did you hear that? Prayer. The prayers of the church in America. People praying for him. And there he is today at the nation's capital, praying for the church of Jesus Christ in America and praying for our great country to not go over this cliff that we're on the edge of right now. That's what he was doing. Prayer changes things. I prayed this today with the men here, but the first book I read when I got saved was Pastor Chuck Smith's book, Effective Prayer Life. I got the Harvest book at the same time with the testimonies of Raul Reese and Jeff Johnson, these guys, but Effective Prayer Life's an easy read. It's like 80 pages, big print. And, uh, I went through it like in two days. And I'll tell you what I always remember about the book, Effective Prayer Life. I, I read it and I believed it. And what I believe is this. Pastor Chuck said, you can change the world without ever leaving your room if you believe in the power of prayer. And I said, I, I believe that. And it made me a praying pastor with a various ebb and flow of highs and lows in my 32 years of ministry. But know this, we're definitely on the upper scale, end of the scale right now for prayer. Whatever the future brings, we don't want to look back at this time and say, why was I distracted watching baseball with no one even in the stands? Or cardboard pictures of people who paid to have their face there. What were you doing when the nation, the greatest nation in the world is weighed in the balances? I was watching, I don't know what I was doing, but I made three hours to watch something meaningless in a stadium with no one in it. Do I sound like Pastor Chuck? Thank you. Remember what Pastor Chuck used to say on Super Bowl Sunday? The spiritual men will be back here tonight at 7 o'clock. I heard it five years in a row when I was on staff. I was like, I got to be here. But even if I didn't, I'd probably come back. You know, who wants to see Pastor Chuck on Monday and I'm thinking you're not spiritual? We got to be praying. God is going to protect us. You look at Corrie Tim Boom when she was in the German concentration camp with her sister. Her sister died in it. Other family members were affected and died. You know, of course, they helped rescue the Jews, the hiding place. The famous Billy Graham. Billy Graham produced the movie, Worldwide Pictures. 
You know, it was for her sister to fulfill her life in that concentration camp, but it's for Corrie ten Boom to be released from that concentration camp. You know, she was released because of a clerical error. The famous, she called herself the tramp of the Lord, Corrie ten Boom, one of the most famous survivors of World War II. The Dutch resistance underground, not with weapons, but with prayer. Corrie ten Boom was released from a German concentration camp because of a clerical error in the paperwork. And she walked right out those gates from a death camp to freedom to be able to testify of Jesus Christ for the next 40 years around the world. And that's what happened because God protected her. And so you see, her sister had run her course and her life was done. It was God's plan that that's how her life would end. That's between her and the Lord. Like Jesus said to Peter, what's it to you if I say he lives a long time? You do what I called you to do. Don't you worry about John. So if Corrie ten Boom's sister dies in the concentration camp, but Corrie ten Boom gets released in those 40 years, that's between them and the Lord. If Dietrich Bronghofer gets hung right before the end of the war, that's between him and the Lord. But as long as we're walking in his statutes, keeping his commandments, performing them, and we know in our heart, in the integrity of our heart, we're doing the best we can to serve the Lord with everything we got, we're going to be at peace. He's going to keep us in perfect peace because we trust in him. And if we lose freedoms or if people come against us, we know that he's going to protect us. Can you imagine what this woman's going to go through for the Supreme Court nominee in the next few weeks? It's going to be insane. I think what I went through with the U.S. Olympic team just a few people not happy with me, complaining to me to the Olympic bosses every day in Colorado. I was like, I'm over it. <laughs> I'm so soft compared to these people, like this woman, that she's going to go through. I think most of us are. We don't like to be attacked. But if we're going to be attacked, let us be on a firm foundation and let us know that God is protecting us and watching over us. God protects your spouse. God protects your children. You ever sent your kids off to college? Can I get a witness? Oh, yeah, Keely. There you go, right? Scott, what can you do? What can you do? You co- commit them to the Lord. God is a protector. God protected Franklin Graham when he was a rebel against God. That's why there's the book, you know, well, it's like the rebel, you know, the, I forget the exact title, but it's, it's, Ruth wrote it, Rebel with a Cause. Ruth wrote the book, Rebel with a Cause, and he'd go rebelling, but she'd stay up until he came home. You know, Frank would come home at three in the morning, mom's up like, she wouldn't say anything, but God's our protector. He protects our mind, he protects our heart, he protects our very life, he protects our loved ones, and when tragic things happen or difficult things happen, we have to say like Job, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken, Blessed be the Lord. Naked I came from the womb, naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's like the song, you know, he gives and takes away. I always mention I don't like that song, but you know what? I still sing it because I believe it. In all this uncertainty that we're looking at, in this countdown to even more uncertainty, not only can I affirm that this text, with New Testament affirmation that God provides for us, he does protect us because Jesus gives us the armor of God. He promises he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And our life is in his hands. The people we love are in his hands. And we come up, we don't know if all by what we do know. And he's our protector. Because even in the Lord's Prayer, not only give us this day our daily bread, but deliver us from evil. Jesus told us to pray for that. He told us as disciples to pray, deliver us from evil. And he will. And if there comes a day when he doesn't, well, maybe that's the end of the journey. 
And either way, let it make you more like Jesus. We don't know what the ending is going to look like. You might have a terminal illness. That's how you're going to be prepared in your last chapter for heaven. You might have Alzheimer's, and that's how you're going to be prepared in your final chapter for heaven. You might be held hostage, and that's how you'll be prepared for your final chapter before heaven. We don't know what we're going to look like on our final chapter before heaven, but we're all going to have a final chapter before heaven. And we want to be found in faith with full confidence that the Lord is our provider and our protector on that day. Because the ultimate thing about the Lord is, is not just the provider and the protector. He's his presence is with us. Because he said there in the last part of this, for them as a nation, I'll look upon you favorably, verse 9, and make you fruitful, multiply you, confirm everything with you, my covenant with you. But he said, I will set my tabernacle, verse 11, among you. My soul shall not abhor you. I'm going to dwell with you. He's in the tabernacle. He's in the holiest of holies. Like, my presence is going to be right in the middle of your nation. Literally, physically, I'm going to be with you. And he says, and I'm going to walk among you. And I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. That's how it is. Because I broke the, broke the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. He's like, basically saying is, I redeemed you. I've saved you. And I've called you. And I'm going to dwell with you in the tabernacle. And I'm going to walk among you. That's what he said to Israel. Now, what does he say to the church? Of course, we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He broke the yoke of Satan, the yoke of the grave, and the yoke of sin. So those are all types of what they went through as a nation of what happens for a believer personally, that the Lord our God is our redeemer, and he breaks that grip. The devil has no authority over our life. None. Nunca. Nada. Nothing. No authority. Jesus is the final authority. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is the final authority over your life. Every hair on your head, every breath that your heart beats, your lungs give and your heart beats till the last moment. He's the final authority. No one can take that from us. We're in God's hands. We're in God's hands. And he's a blessing God. This song is about the blessing. I'm your provider. I'm your protector. And I'm your presence. Now think about this. In the Genesis... The Lord was with them personally in the garden before sin. He dwelt with them. And we're told in Genesis 3, after they sinned, the Lord was what? What's he doing? He's walking in the garden. Now, what's he saying here? I'm going to walk in you. What do you see in the New Testament? Jesus is in the midst, walking in the midst of the churches in Revelation. He's in the midst. He's here. Jesus is here right now in the wisdom of two or three. And even if it was just you, he's with you because he promises to never leave you nor forsake you. But there's something special about two or more, and we're definitely two or more right now. He's in the midst. I told people when I'm having a difficult night in the pulpit, I look right over here, kind of where Fred is, right above the clock to the left, and because that's the right hand. Yeah, that's the right hand. I always look, clock is center. I look to the stage left, but back there right, because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And I just look up. All the difficult times I've had to preach, graveside, my mother-in-law, people mocking me and laughing at me, preaching graveside on good friday i just looked up and looked to the right as unto jesus we're here and we're gone and he's never left me or forsaken me in anything since i've given my life to him he was there before i gave my life to him but the promises are for the covenant and so not only providing not only protecting him, but his presence the presence was lost in the garden of eden but therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ and we're brought into that presence and what are we told There's no tabernacle we go to. We're the temple. He indwells us. The Holy Spirit, you know, the Angram Moth's book, he he indwells us. So we have his presence in us. 
saying, this is the way to go. Hey, don't give up on Russia yet. Do this, write this letter, do that. Hey, pray for this, do this, call that person, follow up on that. He's in us, leading and guiding us and directing us. He's with us and he's walking with us. It's like the famous painting, you know, where like footsteps, there's two sets and there's one set. Oh Lord, it's like, no, the Lord carried us and he has carried us. He didn't carry us this far to unravel and be struck with fear. But he's brought us to the brink of our greatest moment of faith ever, I believe, for the church. You can make it your greatest time of faith ever in your personal life. And this church can choose collectively to say this is going to be our greatest time of faith ever in the history of worship generation for such a time as this. And we can do our part to influence the Calvary Chapel movement to bless the evangelical body of Christ worldwide. We can do our part. But it still comes back to the individual. That presence there's, we were singing that song with Joe Henschel. I've heard it before, but we've never sung it here. That, like, your, your presence, there's nothing greater than your presence, right? Like, that was so powerful. What a great song. That's what it all comes back to. Because what do you see in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation? In the end of all things of God's revelation to humanity, what do you see? The Lord God is there in their midst. His presence is with them. There's no sun because he is the light in the kingdom. And he wipes away every tear and sorrow that we could possibly have. So it was there in the garden, that perfection. It was lost. And then here in the middle of the Mosaic, at the founding of the Mosaic Covenant, he promises these principles to them as a nation and for their families and their individual, get more of it in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then Jesus comes and fulfills all the shadows of things to come. He fulfills it all. And then the church age, which is what we are until he comes back, By the way, you know what he says in the last chapter three times? I'm coming quickly. Three times in the last chapter of the Bible, he says, I'm coming quickly. I mean, I knew that, but like rereading it the other day, I was like, well, like, I'm coming quickly three times. I got a red letter Bible. Like, it's hard to miss that. He's with us until he's done, but his presence is everything. There is nothing better than his presence. We're told the angels wanted to understand this back in the day before this covenant. First Peter tells us that. We're told that people look with expectation in these previous covenants for what we're able to enjoy when we wake up in the morning and seek first the kingdom of God and we have God's spirit speaking to us personally about what he wants to do in our life. What a privilege. What a stewardship. What an opportunity. Our relationship with Christ. Now again, I know most of you, but if you've never given your life to Christ, you can have this relationship. Like he came to give this relationship. It was lost. And then when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, we're, we're brought into that relationship. It's restored. And we don't, we're not living for eternal life. We are living in eternal life. We're already in it. And the spirit confirms with our spirit that we're his children and we're in it. And everything he wants to do in our life right now is about eternity. We're in time, space, and matter, but what he's doing in our life as individual believers and in this church, it's about eternity working in and through us right now in anticipation of eternity, preparing us for eternity and preparing others for eternity. And then this age is going to be gone. There is definitely a new heaven and a new earth coming. And we need to be living for that. So again, I say, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, I will give you all the provision you need. I will give you peace in the land and you will chase your enemies. It's a spiritual battle. That's our high ground. 
The spiritual battle, the high ground, bending the knees, the low ground is the high ground. Prayer, the promises of God. Moving the hand of God, but he promises us protection till he's done, and then his presence. We have his presence. And I'm so glad he hasn't left us here without his presence. I'm so glad for such a time as this, we choose to wake up, most of us, and say, here I am, Lord. Use me. I love the confirmation of his presence in my life, and I know you do too in yours. Let's not take it for granted. Let's run with it. Let's figure out what he wants to do individually each day as best we can discern. And let's make it count, because he says three times, I'm coming soon.